when everything's going fine, I'm not very curious about that. And the way I know it's going right is I can tell that the tone of people's voices is in the exact same range that it always is. But if something happens that's outside normal, as soon as that happens, I'm awake. Or if there's one piece of information that's inconsistent with some huge analysis, the way my mind works, I'm only interested in that, that one piece of data or information that's inconsistent is the key to something changing. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Stephen Schwarzman, Chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Blackstone, one of the world's leading investment firms with nearly a trillion dollars in assets under management. Steve has been involved in all phases of Blackstone's development since he founded the firm in 1985. Blackstone has established leading investing businesses across a wide range of asset classes. These include private equity, real estate, and credit. Blackstone also recently launched new businesses in infrastructure, growth equity, life sciences, and investment management services for insurance companies. Steve is also an active philanthropist with a history of supporting education, culture, and the arts. In 2019, he published the New York Times bestseller, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, a book that draws on his experience in business, philanthropy, and public service. Today in this Voices of CEO Excellence interview, Steve will discuss his approach to leadership, building his firm, and managing talent. He'll also share how he assesses investment opportunities and explain the parallels between his approaches to philanthropic and business leadership. Steve spoke with Vic Malhotra and David Schumann, senior partners in our New York office. Vic is also co-author of 2022's New York Times bestseller, CEO Excellence. And now, here's Vic. Well, Steve, thank you so much for doing this podcast. Uh, We deeply appreciate it. And uh, you, in many ways, have defined CEO Excellence. So the opportunity to explore what has defined your excellent journey as a CEO is a uh, is a real privilege for us. So I really appreciate your time here. Sure. Well, it's great to be here with you and congratulations on your book. Well, thank you. I would love to start in the whole topic of how you've thought over your years as a CEO and as a leader about vision and strategy for Blackstone. It's just a little over 35 years ago, you founded the company. Today, it's among the largest, if not the largest asset manager in the, in the world. You've gone from advisory to private equity and on to real estate and hedge funds and insurance and credit. And, you know, these are all bold, big, bold moves you make. And of course, you talk about boldness in your, in your own book. But I'd, I'd love to just understand how did you think about the vision of what you wanted to build, how that's evolved over time, how you've adapted the strategies. Love to get those perspectives. Yeah. Uh, when we tr- decided to go into business, it's more than being a CEO, it's a founder. Uh, so it's different than inheriting a business and, and managing it. That, that's got its own complexities. When you start something, you have to have a compelling reason for being in business. Why, why would anybody want to deal with you? You have to have something innovative. In addition, creates that momentum for successful execution. So my partner, Pete Peterson, and I spend 
probably three months meeting every day for breakfast was sort of like a job, except it only lasted two to three hours every day and said, what can we do that hasn't been done and create something unique that will appeal to potential customers or users mm -hmm. of our service? So, so we decided right out of the box, one part of the strategy had to be doing the M&A business. It's what I knew how to do. It's what we did as two partners. It required no capital. And so we started the business with $400,000, 200 from each of us. We never put any more money in the business. Okay. Really? And we had a market cap that at the top nine months ago was 185 billion. Uh, so this is a definition. We did something right. So we had the M&A piece, and then I had been doing advisory work for the relatively few people who were in the private equity business back in the early 80s. And so I knew we wanted to do that. I tried to get Lehman in that business where I worked. I was turned down for reasons of perceived conflict right. with our clients. Uh, and, and so I knew this would be a huge thing, and we had the relationships to do that. And the third piece is that we would have ultimate control. So if something was going wrong, we wouldn't have to compromise to protect customers. We could always do the right That's thing. That's a great point. Right? Yeah. So, so those were the three elements of a strategy. And we've basically just been executing that exact strategy that we dreamed up sitting at the Mayfair region for three months. And then we announced that to the world and the world didn't much care, which I thought was an oversight by the world. Uh, and, 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 and then you go about trying to impose your will on the world and you know the endless begging and groveling and how hard it was to raise the private equity fund if you've never been an investor. That shows you how you know, delusional we probably were. Well, the old uh, visionaries we, have to be so, yes, somewhat delusional. Right. And, you know, we convinced the world to give us the biggest first-time fund in history to that time. And then Larry Fink having some difficulties over at First Boston. He was looking to leave the firm and, you know, he was teamed up with a partner of ours from Lehman and they came over to see us and we put them in business. And, and that started what ended up being the largest money manager in the world by assets. He wanted to sell the business after five years or six years, which we did. I didn't want to do that, uh, but he and his people did because they were worried about a market cycle right. and uh, had their reasons. And, and that's gone on to be uh, like an amazing, amazing success. And, and you know, we, we, we went into the hedge funds and it happened to be a guy named Julian Robertson oh, who, who just happened uh, to have developed into being the best hedge fund manager of, of like a 20-year period. Two, two pretty good people to uh, bet behind, right. Larry so, Fink and Julian Robertson. Right. Yeah. So, so that was a good, good call. Then there was a terrible real estate recession, 1991-92, a lot of the Savings and loans went broke and their assets were seized uh, by the government. Somebody came to us to help them buy some assets from that. And we didn't know anything about real estate and I didn't even know how to price it. So we, we did it on a familiar ratio for me, uh, which was six times uh, cash flow, less uh, capital expenditures. And 
what we ended up creating a 64% compound rate of return. So if you do that once, you'd actually like to do it twice. Yes. <laughs> and, and so we looked around for someone to do that with, and we found uh, an amazing guy named John Schreiber. Uh, and, you know, John and I, in effect, were the general partners in, in that business. But what, what did that take? Each of these things take giant size markets down on their luck. You know they're going to come back. An amazing a human being, a natural leader, who not only is an investor, but a leader and a builder. And we've done that in a whole series of businesses. Now, the reason we did that, other people didn't do it, is that I believed that because there are no patents in finance, I watched almost every new product be very successful initially. And then there's nothing to stop, infinite amount of money crowding into the space. And then the margins really collapse. You do more volume, but that, that, that favors very large firms. And, and even so, they don't end up making much money at the end on certain of these products. So I believed that you had to be, in effect, continually innovative. Because if you weren't inventing the next new thing, the old things can all degrade and you'd have nothing left. So I don't know whether this was inspiration or just abject fear that whatever you're doing just melts away. Most of our competitors hit on doing private equity and it was such a good business, they, they just stopped there. And I mean, I love the private equity business, but you never know what happens to any one endeavor. And so we just kept creating. And now, you know, we have almost a trillion dollars in assets. And we have 60 different strategies. We started with just that one investment strategy. Now we got 60. And that's worked out really well. Yeah. So what, what I'm taking away is there were a set of fairly, if I can almost call it audacious principles you laid out in terms of what you wanted to ensure along the way. I particularly like the one of own it and control it. But then what gave you the courage to make these bold moves. You talk about this in your book as well, right? You know, you're making these bold moves into real estate at a time when it's down. You're making bold moves into credit at a time when it's troubled, you know? I'm sure if I thought they were bold, I wouldn't have done them. <laughs> uh, I, I viewed them, you couldn't lose. Couldn't lose, okay, yeah. You're buying I, I, it at the bottom of the market. It was funny, I was with the mayor of Miami and we were going to an office opening and he was walking with me down the corridor because we had all of our employees there. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, how did you decide to take such a big risk on Miami? Hmm. I said, I didn't think it was a risk. It turned out not to be a risk. Right. I said, I don't like risks. So, so I don't view these things as bold. I don't view them as audacious. I view them as completely logical, and I can explain why at the time it makes complete sense. What I never figured out is why most of our competitors didn't care. The most they usually would say is, oh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah. and then go back and do buyouts. It's interesting because in your, in your book, one of your 25 rules I know says when you see a big opportunity, just because no one else is looking at it doesn't mean it's not big. Right. Which I right. thought was very telling. Yeah. I don't think we're risk takers. And part 
of being successful in that kind of activity is imagining what's going to happen before it happens. It's much more difficult to have a worthy fantasy, to have a great dream that you know works than actually doing it. Because if you only select the ones that are going to be dramatically successful, then putting those pieces in place is actually sort of like paint by the numbers. You know, you're just filling it out because you know what it's going to be. And that's where the real art is. It's really coming up with something th that's going to be profound, big enough to move it, move the needle. And th th that to me is the most valuable element. How do you, and this has obviously changed over time, but how have you thought about resource allocation, whether it's capital, whether it's expense dollars, whether it's talent. These are trade-offs, right? It's often a zero-sum game. You're, you're building out certain areas. You're going into new geographies. So, so in our kind of business, capital doesn't matter. Uh, right? right? Yeah. So that you, you can take off the table. It's really a question of, of where do you place your talent given what the yeah. opportunity and is. And your management attention. Right. right. What, what, what you learn over time is if you take B-level talent to do an A-level job, they will fail every time. So if you're going to do something new, that's hard. Somebody else is already in that space. You know, we're not creating new semiconductors here. It's just finance. So that means you can only have your A players playing and nobody has that many A players. So the opportunity needs to be completely compelling to get an A player to give up what they're doing to go do it. So, so in a way, the decision is easier than you think. And if you can't get that to happen, then you end up with a B and you end up with a, with a mediocre outcome. So then you actually shouldn't do it. So in a way, it's really a function of how many people do you have who are capable of doing that. That's the key element in any service business, particularly when you're going in different geographic locations sure. and businesses that you've never been in. You need somebody who is a grandmaster or grandmistress of that domain. And what you use as compensation for that actually doesn't much matter they accomplish the mission. Right. Because if you just stick to missions that are really great and consequential, no matter what you pay that person, it'll, it'll end up working economically. The, the key is achieving your objective. You mentioned one of the other pillars is talent. And throughout your book, you talk about the need to get tens. As Blackstone went from one strategy to 60, how do you ensure that you continue to get tens and refresh as the organization grows? Oh, it's easier and easier. It's hard to hire at the beginning because everybody thinks you're a risk mm -hmm. and, and, and they want such a huge part of the business that it doesn't make sense to start it. As the business gets bigger, you attract people so much easier. Now, uh, we've graduated uh, to, to being really authentic grown-ups. So, so we're hiring 
around uh, one half of one percent. We could barely hire anybody of quality when we started. <laughs> let, let me, if I may, just push you one level further on, on this dimension. From the outside in, it looks like even in a world of the great resignation, you've done a remarkable job, not just recruiting the people, but retaining great talent. Sure. And there are lots of great institutions out there that have a hard time retaining talent. Lots of people leave to start up their own firms and the like. What, what's the secret sauce there? Yeah, I, th I think it's excitement. Everybody here is always learning. None of us are ever finished. In that sense, there's no stability in a good way. And so this is like an adventure. Yeah. that you're signing up for. And that sense of drive, amazement, being around people who are similar but nice. We don't hire anybody who, who's got sharp elbows. And one of the two principles we had when we started is somebody had to be good at what they do, but no internal politics. I told everybody, you will be fired for internal politics. We don't believe in it. I believe that's corrosive and takes away from building teams and trust uh, and, and the fun uh, of accomplishing things. And now when we recruit people from other firms, it's, it's like they've been liberated. And they tell us we get these best place to work awards and all that kind of stuff. But the reason people don't leave is we have, we have very good financial incentives, but it's the fact that there's always something new, something they can develop, something we can develop together. Everybody's a player coach, and we all still think we're young. Yes, we're somewhat right. delusional, uh, which is why we don't look in mirrors. Uh, <laughs> and, and me neither. <laughs> but but we we all have that sense that the world is moving. Where where should we be? Uh, where should we avoid? How do we move forward? What's new? What's interesting? So if you live in that kind of culture, it's very difficult to replicate that. Right. And, you know, we're now at a scale where we're operating in so many different countries and so many different strategies that to keep up with this is a forever young moment. Right. So we hire people who love that kind of mental agility and constant stimulation and learning. Again, outside in, it seems like you've shaped a very impressive culture here. It's entrepreneurial, it's bold, it's open to inputs. I'd love to understand how you've thought about culture over time, how you've shaped it. Figuring out what culture should be has a lot to do with mistakes that you make. So I made a number of mistakes and I always analyze when something goes wrong. Most people, it's quite fascinating about human beings, they, they try and distance themselves from mistakes as if they weren't there, let alone in charge. And the first thing I always do is if something doesn't go the way I expect, what did I miss? What happened here so that it can never happen again? You know, you learn those lessons and you say, okay, we can't ever do X again, right? So that's part of culture. You eliminate process-oriented right. mistakes, human being mistakes, mistakes of lack of coordination. And then 
you have to overlay that uh, with your own core values as a person. Like what's right and wrong? And if you don't know, you can't articulate it. If you know, you have to articulate it. I mean, I spoke uh, to 800 uh, new employees at the firm for two hours. And I basically told them, here's what we think. Okay. Here's the examples. And here, here's why we think this. Hmm. And I managed to get them laughing by the end. At the beginning, they were just sort of like. <laughs> A little nervous, were they? <laughs> they, were, they, were, they? These were the younger, uh, you know, sort of vice presidents below. Uh, and, you know, like, what, what, what is this person doing up there? And I, I told them, what I'm doing here is I'm going to teach you what we believe. Uh, because you're going to believe it too, or else you can't be here, right? You, you, you can vote for who you want. You can read whatever you want. But core values, everybody signs up. And so here, that's the bedrock. Right. And here's where they are, and here's why. Here's why that'll work for you and why it works for everybody else. And so you need to educate everybody so what are some of your core values? It's excellence in all we do. It's openness. It's horizontal management. Right, yeah. In other words, we're all, we're all the same. Yeah. The only difference is some of us have a little more data because we're older. We're not smarter. Uh, we, we don't believe in glass ceilings. Part of our overall value system is to be expanding uh, when we can, one, it's good economically, but two, it provides a job, a promotion, new opportunities for people. So all we care about is how good you are. Uh, and if you're great, you win. Yeah. But to win, you have to be collaborative. You have to be part of teams. You have to communicate. You know, we teach people if somebody from another group calls you, you like instantaneously call them back. They're calling you for a reason. Right. And that means they need you. And you have the right to make that call as well. But if, you know, it's sort of like a fast break basketball team. If, if they throw the ball to you and you don't look over, you don't catch it and it goes into the stands, it's a turnover. Right? We don't drop the ball. Yeah. And somebody needs you. You give them a quick email or a call, find out what it is. All questions are fair. You can't ask the same question three times. <laughs> then you may be I a dummy. <laughs> okay. But, but, you know, you don't have to figure out everything for yourself. Yeah. Ask away. Right. No penalties. I, I like to encourage uh, younger people to feel totally at home and know that there's a clear path in front of them. It's just about how good they are. Yeah. And how does your culture, if I may just probe one level further, balance two of your rules, which I thought were fascinating. One of your rules was be bold, right? There was, always, was, uh, was be bold. Uh, and the right. boldness included things like, you know, if you're going to do something, do something big rather than do something small, it's going to take the same amount of effort. So you've got the, the be bold rule and you've got the don't lose money rule. Well, that's but, totally consistent. If something's bold, that just means it's big and it's ambitious. But I also believe anything we do should be almost instantly profitable because finance keeps moving around so much. 
that if you can't be profitable in like a first year, the reason you started it may be gone. So to actually push a go button, the fact that it's big and audacious is actually meaningless. The, the issue is, is it, is it still there to do? And if it's still there to do, then you don't have to worry about losing money. It works. It just works. Yeah. 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 I was in a conversation on talent with Sandy Og, and he told me a story about, particularly in the private equity world, when you look at your portfolio companies, one of the notions I think you introduced to him or you jointly developed with this notion of talent to value, recognizing that in any company you're looking at, there were 50, 100, 150, 200 roles that disproportionately drove value in an institution. I'd love to just kind of get your perspectives that you might have had on this, this whole topic of talent and key roles, and therefore, how do you put the very best people into those key roles? This is no different than a sports team. What does it take to make a great football team? It, it takes a great general manager, a great coach, and a great quarterback. If you have three people in that position who are tens, the rest of them don't much matter. Pay anything you can to Tom Brady or whoever that franchise quarterback is. And the rest of them is just the coach making people good who the general manager is smart enough to sniff out and hire because they're all on other teams pretty much. So he's got to have a gift. Uh, the coach has to have a gift and the quarterback has to have a gift. If those three people have it, the rest of the team will show up and you will win championships. It's really simple. Those are your three impact players. Two of them don't have a salary cap. I'm just giving you a very simple analysis of, of how you figure that out. Where is your point of influence? It's almost always the person in charge. You can see how a wrong person in charge of something destroys a business. Sometimes it takes them 10 years. And if you have somebody who's truly gifted, that is your impact player. And, and then, of course, in, in all the diverse operations, you need somebody like that in that kind of key position, whether it's a chief investment officer or it's a specialist who's really terrific. And, and you pay up for those people because those are the people who make it happen. And you know what you need in those positions and you must get those people because that's what makes any organization successful. Those are the pivotal roles that ultimately drive success. Right. And then they can figure out who else to hire and the rest of it. But those people make it happen. Can I go to the topic of your own team? You've obviously built not just a team of stars, but a star team that has come together uh, to work well together. How do you ensure that dynamic and how has that changed over time? But it doesn't happen by accident. So I'm just well, interested in the role you as, as the leader, as the CEO have played in ensuring that over time. Well, there isn't an alternative. I, I, I agree with that. I mean, you're not allowed <laughs> to, to, to not be that way because if that's a core value, the people at the top 
have to totally share that. I, I, I say at the firm, we, we have a mission. You know, Blackstone isn't a business. It's, it's a mission to be the best in the world at whatever we choose to do. And in fact, when Sandy was here, uh, I actually interviewed him. He had 17 interviews, and I was the last person. By the time somebody gets to me at the end, if I don't like them, there's something wrong with our system, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, every once in a while, that happens. But with Sandy, I said, how was your interview experience? He said, it was really quite surprising. I said, why? And he said, usually in any organization, when you get below the top three or four levels of an organization, nobody below believes anything. The people above them think they do, but they don't. It's like not a shared value. He said, every person I met here, if I ask the same question as I asked another person, they have the same answer. He said, I've never met an organization like this. In your book, you talk about the transition to a professional organization and the role Tony played and the yes. difference in your personality. How do you think about the different skill sets of your team and those you bring in? I think you have to have a synchronicity with everybody, uh, but you don't have to have the same skills. You know, some people are better at other types of things. Uh, Tony, he knew all kinds of things in terms of normal managerial process. And that was one of the reasons I, I thought he would be terrific. Uh, and, and so he put in a lot of systems that I wouldn't have known about. So when you're assembling a team, you want people who share core values, but have different areas of strength. And, and so, you know, of course, we have people who do different things here. Uh, but they all have to have that ability to communicate in a seamless way so you know exactly what they're not only saying, but thinking and feeling. Right. I'll put. I, I'm going to uh, come to, if I may, my favorite one of your 25 rules. I love them all, uh, but if I had to pick a favorite, it's the following one, and I think I quote this right. The best executives are made, not born. They never stop learning. You clearly have a learning mindset. It sounds like many in at Blackstone have a learning mindset. Talk to me a little bit more about why this is, how you view this rule and how it's played out for you over time. Well, we're in a business that's based on instability. If you happen to be an American by accident and you figured out how you think our country works, our markets work, there's so many different markets. But imagine if you then started trying to do that all over the globe. It's an unending bit of instability and factors that keep laying on each other. It's a very dynamic model. So to be good, you, you have to be uh, accumulating uh, information continually, and you have to find that stimulating, and then you have to start integrating that piece with what you know, and then you just keep building it. And, and so, you know, in different parts of the world, different markets, and if you can do all that, you may not sleep much. 
but you'll have a very exciting life, uh, right? <laughs> you know, that kind of endless learning uh, makes you uh, better at everything you do. But in terms of creating new things and creating scale and doing it in different places, geez, that's a lot of fun. That's not a job. I love the embrace of learning. So this is the part in the in this interview where I will ask you not to be humble, please. I, I need I need the straight straight scoop on this one, which is, well, to use the word humble, you came from what I understand is a relatively humble background. You've gone on to build what is arguably one of the largest financial institutions in the world, certainly one of the largest asset managers, if not the largest asset manager in the world. If you were to kind of boil it down to the three, four, five traits that you would say are the core to your success at a personal level, what, what would they be? What do you boil it down to? Well, one is just desperation to be successful. <laughs> See, this is where you're being humble now. <laughs> no, I'm telling you. You ask me, I'm telling you. That's one. You know, the second is uh, just, just enormous uh, energy. Third, I, 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 I think while I'm sleeping. So this is a real competitive uh, weapon and roll things over and, you know, that's sort of unusual aspect. And, and, and the fourth is being able to recognize paradigm shifts before almost anyone. And, and the reason for that is, is the way my mind works. When everything's going fine, uh, I'm not very curious about that. And the way I know it's going right is I can tell that the tone of people's voices is in the exact same range that it always is. But if something happens that's outside normal, as soon as that happens, I'm awake. Or if there's one piece of information that's inconsistent with some huge analysis, Nobody pays attention to it. They just sort of wash it away because the sheer volume of everything leads you in a direction. The way my mind works, I'm only interested in that that one piece of data or information that's inconsistent is the key to something changing. Nobody wants to experience change. They just want to continue to being successful doing the same thing they always were doing. Whereas I keep thinking about that, where is that taking us? And sometimes I can figure it out just on that one piece. But basically it's like the uh, TV show when I was in the 1960s called Name That Tune. Mm -hmm. They gave you one note, could you figure out the song? Two notes, three notes, four notes. So I have a simple rule that you've got a one third chance of figuring it out with one piece of information a two-thirds probability with two, and with three pieces of discordant information, 100%, you'll nail it. You know it. Meanwhile, yeah. nobody's even looking, <laughs> right? So that's been very useful to me. Right. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's business or politics or almost anything. Right. Interesting. Interesting. As a leader, how would you describe your leadership model? Is it one that uh, delegates? Is it one that's hands-on? Is it one where 
you take the big strategic decisions and step back? Uh, is it one that focuses hard on shaping the culture? Maybe all of that and maybe many other things. I just love your take on what you view as your leadership style and your operating model. Well, it depends on the issue. Fair uh, if it's a uh, very troublesome public relations uh, issue, I I'm all in. I, I will micromanage that. Mm. If it's some other type of issue that somebody else can handle, uh, my number two person is uh, the president of the firm, John Gray. John can handle almost every, anything. He's amazing. I don't need to do that. I just like to know what's going on. And from working with somebody for 30 years, if you can't figure out that you're under control or not, then there's something defective with you. So I have no trouble delegating. I don't view it as delegating. It's, it's not delegating. It's just what it's they do. Your, it's part of your it's management. It's just part of what they do. And if I think there's going to be trouble, I'm on it. If things are just operating in a normal way, my job isn't to interfere with that. It's to observe the people who are doing it to see how they're doing. And sometimes to just lighten things up. These people are so bright. They're serious all the time. I mean, really. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and so I'll be at a big meeting and say something that's, you know, like really not straight down the fairway, you know, just to get a reaction, just right. to have people relax. Uh, and I've learned how to uh, not be the first person speaking, you know, let everybody speak. You'll, you'll always learn more letting them speak than hearing yourself. Then you, I mean, you learn nothing by listening to yourself. It's, it's listening to other people. And so you, you end up playing much different roles uh, based on what the circumstances uh, of the situation are. And if you've seen something and lived it numerous times that other people haven't seen, the objective of just letting them do it and screw it up it's a bad idea. You can move it over to them, see how they're doing, but then, you know, then you're an active watcher. And if it starts going wrong, because it might, then you want to break into that conversation and say, you know what? Why don't we think about it this way? This, this could happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought about that one. And, and that's all I have to do. So, so the key is letting everyone uh, become self-actualized. Nobody needs me anymore. I mean, really. That's such amazing people. There's such depth at the firm that, that, that makes my job much easier than it used to be. I mean, 25 years ago, I did everything. And, you know, that was, there was no alternative. Yes, indeed. So I have two, two last questions. You, you are well known in the business community and beyond. You have a fairly big external profile. People solicit your views. Your, you, you chaired the uh, partnership for New York City when I was, a, I was a board member on it. How do you think about your external time and your external commitments relative to your internal leadership time? And I imagine that's also evolved over time. But how do you get, how do you think about that balance? Recognizing you got to sleep a little bit, even if you're thinking in your sleep. Well, as you get older, there are more things you're asked to do and so forth. So, so you have to limit those things. 
you do things e either where there's big impact uh, on the community or big impact on the world. And I always like trying to um, do, do something that I, at least I think is a paradigm sh changing activity. You know, we all have a responsibility to be part of different communities. I mean, this happens to be where I live in New York and you want to make New York better. And, you know, there's a tradition of different people taking that position as chairman of the partnership. And, and, and so you do that just because it's your duty, it's your obligation. You know, you, you sort of want to pass the city on better than the way you got it. So uh, that's how I try and make decisions. I, I, I don't go to board meetings. I'm not. A, I'm not an unpaid audience. Uh, I, I believe that my time is pretty scarce, and if somebody of real quality is running an organization, they certainly don't need me watching them. How do you relax? You used to play tennis. You know, unfortunately, as you get older, different parts of your body start wearing out or something. Uh, I, I love just um, uh, being on a boat and looking at the water and the, the way it's always changing in the sun and reading at the same time, looking up, looking around. I mean, that's unbelievably uh, wonderful. You know, I, I like sitting on a beach, uh, reading or you know, talking uh, on the phone to somebody. I mean, it's, there's something magical uh, about being able uh, to do that. I can't end this without talking about your philanthropy. Uh, you are uh, obviously an amazing philanthropist. Uh, uh, you've been very generous and I know continue to be generous. How do you think about this as part of your legacy? What are you hoping to do? I, I like doing things uh, for society uh, that are good. I end up getting involved in projects that could help a lot of people. MIT, you know, it's trying to solve the problem of how do we make the United States more competitive in technology, particularly in uh, computer science, where the world is now rapidly progressing. My perception was the U.S. was falling behind. There wasn't enough money going into it. There was no government involvement, but I, I wanted to change that. So how do I change that? So just accidentally, I knew the head of MIT and was talking to him and talked about this need. He said, well, you got no idea. This is like really a profound problem. And, and so I said, well, what would you do? He said, I, I'd love to double my computer science faculty, deploy it, not just in you know, conventional engineering and computer science, but, but link it to all the other areas at, at the university so we can be the first AI-enabled university and the kind of knowledge that can be shared and produced would be amazing. And um, I said, but if you did that, wouldn't your competitors do the same thing? He said, of course. He said, that's the point. Yes, you scale. Yeah, right. yeah. So we, we can scale that. I said, okay, so we can wake you up and we can wake up the other great universities. And I, I said, okay, I'll take on the government thing. And, you know, I'll, I'll get you how much you want. And so, you know, 
They had a big nest in, in Berkeley, which is one of the top three universities, started a college of computing like MIT did. Stanford did the same thing. So we, we basically created a reinvigorated uh, technology thrust uh, for the United States. But, but I, I said to Raphael, so what does it cost to do this at MIT? He said, I don't know. Never ask a university president, what does it cost? because they will actually go back and figure it out and then they come to see you. And uh, so he needed a, a billion one, so he asked me to give it. So I, I told him to jump in a lake. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm not giving you a billion one. <laughs> come on, who do you think I am? <laughs> so, so, so we settled, uh, he's, you know, he, then he went for half, you know, 550 and we ended up at 350. But I, I didn't know what I was doing in technology really. So, so I said, if I'm doing 350, you have to do 350. You have a board of directors, you've got a big endowment. If you're not willing to match me, that means you don't believe that this is hypercritical. And you would know better than I would, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you've got the facts. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you are yeah. the top technology university. So he came back three weeks later, he had, he had the 350. So I gave him 350. That's 700. And on our way to a billion one, we're about halfway there now. But I wasn't trying to make it philanthropy. I was trying to solve a problem for the United States. But that's sort of what I do. And then I get stuck with the bill. And it doesn't bother me a lot. So I, I, I do a series of these types of things in different fields, maybe. But they all have in common that we're changing something right mm -hmm. and nobody else is involved because there isn't an existing organization so if you start them then you write the check and you know that's sort of the the lens i look through in many ways it reflects your approach at blackstone go big be bold yeah paradigm shift yeah see, you know, make a huge difference i don't i don't regard it as different than what i do at work it just happens to be not-for-profit, doing the same type of thinking and creation at work is for-profit. But the, the motives are very similar. Just the content is, is somewhat different. But for, to me, it's all the same. I don't view it as, here's my philanthropy hat. It's the same hat, which makes it easy for me. It's very consistent life. Well, Steve, thank you. Thank you. This has been mind-opening in many ways. It's been incredibly thoughtful. Just a huge thank you from all of us for doing well, this. Well, thank you. you. This is like time off for me. Oh, that's so, great. So now I'm I actually glad. have to go back to work. <laughs> so thank you. Many thanks to Steve and Vic, and thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you're interested in listening to Vic's previous Voices of CEO Excellence conversation with Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman, there's a reference to that podcast in our show notes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com or share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. Thank you to all of our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed the podcast. We really appreciate your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to follow our series on your favorite podcast player, where you can access our entire library of previous episodes. 
You can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page available at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, which includes written transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page at mckinsey.com slash SCF, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.